I like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. One year ago, an 18-year-old white supremacist drove for more than three hours to a grocery store in Buffalo, where he targeted and killed 10 people solely because they were black. This week, we're going to talk about that shooting, how it's changed Buffalo, and where the city, called the City of Good Neighbors, goes from here. We'll speak with Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoplestokes, whose district is in Buffalo, and look at how her partners in public media continue to cover the shooting one year later. But first, I want to take a moment to remember the victims and who they were. Aaron Salter was a security guard at the store and a former police officer in Buffalo. He tried to shoot the attacker, but his bullet was stopped by body armor. Ruth Whitfield was a loving wife, mother and grandmother. She was the mother of a retired fire commissioner in Buffalo. Geraldine Talley was engaged to be married, and friends and family said she just loved everybody. Catherine Massey was an advocate for her community, who also wrote for historically black newspapers in Buffalo. Pearl Young ran a food pantry for more than two decades and loved to sing and dance. Hayward Patterson was a deacon at a local church who offered safe rides home to people in the community. Celestine Cheney loved being a grandmother to her six grandchildren and was a regular churchgoer. Margus Morrison was a bus aide for Buffalo Public Schools and worked as a security guard before that. He loved the Buffalo Bills. Andre McNeil was at Topps to buy a birthday cake for his son. He was loved by his family. And Roberta Drury was loved by her family and was in Buffalo that day to help her adoptive brother with his recovery from cancer. After the shooting, New York responded by passing stricter gun laws. Anyone under 21 can no longer get a gun license. Body armor can no longer be bought here. The state's red flag gun law was expanded and more. The shooter has since pled guilty in federal court, and we expect he'll spend his life in prison. But for Buffalo, new laws and the justice system can't undo what happened. And they might be a part of the community's recovery, but residents will tell you that's a longer road ahead. One of those residents is Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoplestokes, who lives just minutes from where the shooting happened on Buffalo's east side. We sat down to remember the shooting, and discuss where we go from here. Take a look. Majority Leader, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Of course. So it's been about a year since this awful shooting in Buffalo. It's an event that has happened in countless communities across America, and what we've learned from that is that it's going to take a lot of time to heal from something like this. How do you see Buffalo one year later? Um, I see Buffalo still struggling emotionally. Um, I see people who um, were hurt by what happened. I see families directly hurt, but I also see a broader community um, that was hurt. And I see people who, men in particular, who wish they could have been there to get their hands on that guy. Mm. Um, or wish they had an opportunity to get their hands on that guy. And that's, that's an emotional stress that people still carry. Um, I actually see families that have literally turned their hurtful emotion into positive things. Um, just one woman who's 
son was shot, he didn't die, but he was wounded, uh, has been collecting black books and just handing out books to anybody that wants them. I mean, that's just a that's phenomenal great. response to yeah. a very difficult thing. But I also see people who are the naysayers. They were the naysayers before 514, and they're still the naysayers. They're complaining about what hasn't happened. Mm. But if you ask them what have they done to make these things happen, they would probably say a lot of nothing other than talking. And so I don't you know, think the solution to this problem is us coming up with ways to create new legislation. As a matter of fact, some of the legislation that was created right after, I voted against mm. because it was literally jeopardizing people's rights who have permits to carry weapons on where they could carry them to. Uh, a lot of the religious community in Buffalo was very upset about that. And in fact, a lot of the people who were on the streets days after 514, if they requested one thing of me, they said, please do not pass any more laws that restrict our rights to have a gun. Hmm. Now, you know, a lot of people feel like that because not that they want to protect themselves from the people who they live in and around in their community, but they want to protect themselves from the broader society that does carry a racial hatred towards black people. Do you, do you, you know that you want to be, you want to feel like you could protect yourself. Right, and you still feel that way today, I'm, I'm presuming. Yeah. Uh, take me back a year prior to now when the shooting happened. I, I think when we hear about mass shootings a lot of the time, they're not anywhere near us. Uh, we're talking about Texas in the week that we're talking. Um, you know, you have Ford, uh, Las Vegas, everywhere. So. When the shooting happened in Buffalo last year, for me at least, it felt incredibly personal that it was in Buffalo. It's five hours away from me, but for me, New York is my backyard all across the state. How did you feel learning that well, the shooting if you happened? Think it was personal you being five hours away. How about being five minutes away from around the corner? Exactly. Um, for where you shop at, where you live at, where yeah. you, you, know, you raise your family at. Um, I can't even express in words the shock and pain that I felt. I, wanna, I will say one of the first things I thought, she said, oh, there's a shooting at Topso Jefferson. There are a lot of shootings that happen in and around inner city communities where people are hurt. Hurt people hurt other people. And so I'm thinking, oh, maybe some guys got into something and, you know. But when I heard it, it was a guy who came specifically to kill black people. You know, I had nothing but tears at that point and a lot of pain. And I literally kept myself away from that site for like two days, maybe three, because I knew if I went there, my agitation would flow off onto the people. Mm. And when people get agitated, people do things that are not the right response at a time like this. I mean, I literally wanted to fight myself. I, you know, I wish I could have got my hands on this guy. So, you know, I, that was hard for me. I, I'm not gonna, you know, say anything different. It was very, very difficult for me. But I do think that we're also getting to a place where um, people understand that we're not gonna fix racism by what people say to you. It's gonna be fixed by what people do and how they treat you. And until that treatment changes, um, we're not gonna change racism, it's here. And so I think people are figuring out that we have to just take care of ourselves. Um, there are a lot of people who have extensive wealth who don't live in and around that community. They could, but they don't. They choose to go somewhere where it's 
They feel more safe and more peaceful. The fact of the matter is whether you live in Chittawaga, Tanawanda, or Amherst, you're still black. And if somebody wants to come and kill black people, you're not gonna be able to hide that because you can't get up in the morning and change the complexion of your face. Right. And so I think when people who are um, as concerned about the people who still live in that community would begin to pour in, I think we get, we'll see a different resolve. As long as we wait for government, if you will, to, to invest in our communities the same way they invest in other communities, yet we are not willing to do that, um, it's a challenge. And so it's a challenge all, all the way around. I will say that I noticed that there are more black businesses opening. Um, I think people are understanding that, you know, I, I, I need to do this on my own. I, I can't keep waiting for government to be there for me and my family. It sounds, you have a lot of pain from this. I still altitude. do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So does the community. Something that I also experienced was a lot of anger after this shooting. I think it was painful, and then I was immediately looking for somebody to blame. I wanted to pin it on somebody. Did you have that experience too, and who do you blame? Of course I did. I mean, when you find out these, these parents were civil servants, worked for state government, I mean, we actually use taxpayer dollars to pay people to raise a kid that was prepared to kill hundreds of people if he could have got to them. Yeah. Had all the weapons that he needed, protecting himself in a way that nothing could have happened to him. At least not with a gun. I mean, I don't know if anybody else could have got him, stopped him any other way. But, you know, this kid walking into the supermarket, and I'm calling him a kid because he is. Yeah. But I also know that kids are not born being haters. They learn to be haters. Somebody taught them that. And whose else responsibility is it but the parents? We get, black people get accused of irresponsibility with anything with their kids that don't happen right. That's irresponsible on those parents' part as well because that, he didn't, wasn't born that way. And he came with such vengeance that he knew where black people lived. And I actually don't believe he was solo. I think there are people in Erie County in Western New York who worked with them. Mm. They worked underground with him. They were on the computer with him. They were edging him on. They were motivating him. They were helping him understand where to go. And so again, racism is still alive in a well in America. It hasn't gone anywhere. That's not changed in a year. And I, you know, I, there may be a few people who feel differently about race or maybe think, have second thoughts about their own personal biases against black people and maybe they felt really good because they sent in some, I don't know, five or six million dollars from all over the world into Buffalo to help support the families of victims. But that still doesn't take away the fact that racism is still alive and well. And until that's ratified or fixed or I don't know how you get that to go away. That's what I was just gonna ask you. I don't even know what the answer is. I, I to don't me, know. racism is, I just, I just don't understand how somebody's brain can go there, you know? So I don't understand how, how to make them not go there, you know? Do you have any thoughts on that? It's such a tough question. I wish I had the answer, yeah. but one thing I know for sure is that governmental systems from, day one have always set up 
policies that were race-based. Yeah. And so a lot of those policies need to be unmantled. And like the legislation I'm sponsoring right now, that would stop charging people more for insurance based on their zip code mm. or based on their credit rating, based on their income. If you need a car to get to work and you charge more for your insurance, then the guy who lives in Amherst, who does the same job as you have, has the same salary and basically the same credit rating, but you pay more for your insurance simply because of where you, you choose to live around your own people. That is a race-based policy. And they can make all kind of gobbledygook language around algorithms and all the rest of that they want to put on it, but it is a race-based policy. Those kind of things need to stop. Banks that won't lend, redlining, insurance redlining just in order to get property insurance on your house. All of those things need to be eliminated. That's something government can do. But when you get a chance to put something in and ask them to do that, then you have thousands of, or hundreds of lobbyists coming out with all kinds of reasons why you can't let these people have the ability to live like a normal American because they're not. Mm. And that's not true. We are normal Americans. There's nobody more American than black people. We didn't come here as immigrants. We didn't ask to come here. But when we got here, we built this country, worked every day, went to every war that this country ever had. The most patriotic people there are, we, that's us. That's who we are. But we get treated the worst. And so until that changes, I don't necessarily see a 514 going away. We saw after the shooting, some federal officials come to Buffalo to you know, visit. Do you think that when we're looking at solutions for you know, all these issues across the board in terms of you know, guns, gun control, the issue of race, things like that, do you think that's something that we can tackle here in New York on our own or do we need something to happen at the federal level too? I don't think we can tackle gun control from New York on our own. You know, I live an hour from Pennsylvania border. Mm. I live. And not that much further from Ohio. Right. I mean, and go there and get any kind of gun you want. As a matter of fact, I, I just left Atlanta. People drive between Buffalo and Atlanta all the time. Everybody has a gun in Atlanta. Hmm. And if everybody has them, that means everybody's selling them. I see um, inner city communities where there's so much violence as a market for the gun manufacturers. They know it's a market. And they intentionally put guns even in places like New York where you cannot have own a weapon unless you have a permit. Which, by the way, I'm permitted to have one, and I do have one. Yeah. Uh, my father taught me how to shoot a gun. We went to Big Hill Hunting and Fishing Club every year, every summer. So I, I'm, you know, I'm not afraid of guns. I know what their purpose are, and I know how you can protect yourself and protect others to make sure that they're not hurt. But I also do think that you know, New York's gun laws is not going to stop any problems that we have with gun violence, not one. It's a federal problem and it has to be dealt at the federal level. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you to look ahead past this year anniversary. As we've seen Buffalo start to heal over the past year, how do you see Buffalo continuing to heal as we move on from this? I think I see um, And I'll just pick the street of Jefferson, which that's where Tops is. Yeah. I think I see black people who own property 
on Jefferson investing in it in a way that they have not invested before. And I think I see support for them um, to invest in it. Um, I know that you know, everybody doesn't necessarily have the same abilities to get resources, but I also do know that there's a housing crisis in mm -hmm. Buffalo, as there is across the state, and people who own property, you just need to have a couple of things in order and I believe you can go to a bank and get money to develop it into something that could be usable into the future. So I see that happening. I, I really do see that happening. In spite of what um, some of the naysayers think, I do think that that's a possibility. And I believe it's closer than we really believe. And I think once we start doing that, focusing on doing what we need to do for ourselves and our own community, everything else will come. Assembly Majority Leader Crystal People-Stokes, thank you so much for sitting down with You're us. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And another thanks to the Majority Leader for sharing her story. What we really didn't want to do this week is tell Buffalo's story for Buffalo. We are not part of that community and we didn't want to pretend like we were. Instead, we turned to our partners in public media. In the days after last year's shooting, our friends at WBFO and Buffalo Toronto Public Media started something new. Every weekday since then, the station has produced an hour-long show focused on why the shooting happened in Buffalo and, as they say, provide a space for healing. And as the anniversary of the shooting approached, they wanted to do something different. So they traveled to Charleston, South Carolina, where a similar mass shooting killed nine people eight years ago at an historically black church. And what WBFO really wanted to find out was if Buffalo could learn from Charleston as both cities continue to recover. And that led to moments like this, when WBFO's Thomas O'Neill White was interviewing a prominent local religious leader. How, have things changed here? How have things changed here uh, in the eight years since the tragedy? Um, speaking on racial issues, um, there's been some movement forward uh, overall, though, within this state uh, that's steeped in racism and racial bias. Um, the underpinnings of economic success and educational success and all of the things that it really takes in order to be successful in America, those things are still lacking far behind. So for more on why they went to Charleston and what they found, I spoke with Bridget Jaipal Valenza managing editor at WBFO News. Bridget, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. So it's been about a year since that tragic shooting in Buffalo last May, just a terrible thing that happened there. I wanna ask you first, a year out, how do you see the city of Buffalo doing? How is the community doing there? The city in and of itself, I think, is doing a little bit better. Um, Things are still a little tense on the east side. Things are um, happening that really need to happen. Discussions need to happen, and those are going on. But as a whole, the city and the area is still really grieving um, over what happened. You know, you've done something really interesting that I wanted to talk to you about in, in marking this year of the shooting. Your team went down to Charleston, which if our audience uh, doesn't remember, in 2015, there was a terrible shooting there 
where the shooter targeted a historically black church and killed nine people. Tell me why you wanted to go to Charleston. Well, there are so many similarities between Charleston's shooting and Buffalo's shooting. Even though, sort of at a first glance, you're thinking, yeah, there's a shooting, so that's the only similarity. But really, in both shootings, there were elderly members of the community, um, people who would be considered, you know, these sage people that people would go to advice for. Um, those are the people who were killed. In both instances, the shooter actually spent time with those people who he was planning on um, killing. And he ingratiated, they both ingratiated themselves into a, a place where one would feel safe. A, a church, a grocery store. It's stuff that we do every week, every day sometimes uh, for some people. Um, the amount of people who were killed are also very similar. And both the cities really have this undertone of racism that is sort of baked in to their communities. So it was kind of an obvious choice for me. Um, plus I thought that we could learn a lot from them. They're eight years out of their tragedy. We're only one year out now from our tragedy. And I thought that it would be interesting to take a look at a community that's been through something so similar and to find out if they have any advice for us or if they could be a roadmap to a certain extent for our community. Tell me about who you talked to. Were you going down there just to talk to everyday residents of Charleston? Did you get to interview any leaders there? Uh, who, what was your objective here? Like, who did you want to talk to and who did you get to talk to? We really wanted to talk to community leaders, community activists, and then um, some folks at the AME church down there. Um, it's interesting that a lot of people were a little hesitant to talk to us. Um, one of the gifts that we can give to our listeners and our viewers is that we bring them stories that they wouldn't normally hear. Mm. So we really wanted to hear from people in the community versus lawmakers, versus heads of agencies. While those interviews are really important for an overview, we really wanted to find out kind of that boots on the ground, who's there, who's doing this work, and what are they seeing? Um, so we ended up speaking with uh, several reverends, some community activists, and then just people on the street, really, to ask their opinion and to see if they had any advice for Buffalo. Yeah, tell me what they told you. I, I mean, eight years is, is a much longer time than we've had since the shooting in Buffalo. I imagine they had a lot of insight for you. You would think uh, probably the biggest thing that we took away from Charleston is that it is an extremely faithful community. They are faith-based in almost everything they do. The church plays a huge role for them. And so a lot of the advice that we had gotten was to pray. Mm. Now, you know, there's always that sentiment of thoughts and prayers after a tragedy and people get, um, are getting a little tired of hearing well, thoughts and prayers for this community that's just been 
decimated by gun violence. Um, so when we moved past that, their advice to us really was to keep having difficult conversations, which is exactly what we do here at uh, WBFO. Now, is it difficult as well as a journalist from Buffalo to continue covering something like this or covering something like this at all? You know, we're taught as journalists to be separate from what we cover completely. But with something so deeply personal and tragic like this in Buffalo, I have to imagine that that is sometimes hard to do. It is sometimes near impossible to do. Um, for instance, when Peyton Gendron was sentenced, yeah. I had several crews in and around and also in the court at the time. And maybe halfway through sentencing, I could see my reporters from uh, the, my vantage point, and I could tell that they weren't doing great. Um, they had to listen to all of these victim impact statements, and it really got to them. So after court was done, everybody's filed their reports, then it's time to sort of make sure that my team had the time and space to really decompress from that because it's, it, we're, we're human. We're reporters, yes. We are journalists, yes. Um, but we're also human. And I think that sometimes people forget that. Um, we have emotions. We have feelings about things. We are able to put those aside to get a job done. But it doesn't mean that those feelings go away. And we have to deal with them. I agree with you completely. I think it's it's a difficult road ahead, but it's one that we need to go on. But we are out of time. Bridget Jaipal Valenza from WBFO, thank you so much. Thank you. And a special thanks to Bridget for sitting down with us. For more coverage on Buffalo's recovery and the anniversary of 514, head to our website. We'll link to WBFO's special ongoing coverage of the shooting and Buffalo's recovery. Find that at nynow.org. But we're going to leave it there for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.